Well, our sermon this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 17. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. You'll find that on page 958 in the Pew Bible. It's been a great delight to be here already as we praise our Lord and rejoice in Him and all who He is and what He has done. I pray that He would continue to receive our worship as He teaches us here from His Word. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17, hear now the Word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Father, we thank you for your word now. We believe you've given it to us, and we believe that it is our great delight this morning to sit under it. We hope and pray that you will reveal yourself to it. We believe that it is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We believe it will not return void. And so we commend it into your hands and ask that you would do with it what you will, namely that you would glorify yourself and encourage your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1531, in the Netherlands, a man named Sieg Freaks was executed. His crime... He was baptized as a believer. The criminal sentence book of the court of Friesland wrote, Seek Firks on this 20th of March, 1531, is condemned by the court to be executed with the sword. His body shall be laid on the wheel and his head set upon a stake because he has been rebaptized and perseveres in that baptism. Approximately 25 years later, 288 brothers and sisters in Christ were killed in England. Specifically, they were burned at the stake. 
including 55 women and four children. Their crime? They denied the real presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. The theologian from the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, writes of this event saying, The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really present under the forms of the bread and wine? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ was present on the so-called altar as soon as the mystical words passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was a simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. So I wonder if theology is worth dying for. I wonder if what you believe is worth giving your life for. I imagine that, that most of us here would say, yeah, of course, what I believe is, is everything. But I wonder specifically about these theologies, the theology of baptism or the theology of the Lord's Supper. Is that worth dying for? I mean, after all, these individuals were, were not asked to deny Christ. They were just simply asked to deny what they believed about the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Is that worth going to the stake for? To be honest, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure. I, certainly, I praise the Lord that I, I trust I will never have to decide. But what I find compelling about these stories is that there was a time in which baptism and the Lord's Supper held such meaning amongst God's people that they were willing to die for it. And in fact, others were willing to kill for it. And my hope this morning as we begin our study of of the Lord's Supper is that we'll be startled perhaps by the massive gap between their devotion and what often is our shallowness when it comes to these realities. In fact, countless Christians today, for some reason, think baptism to be optional, as if it's up to them whether they are baptized or not, uh, not an, an issue of obedience to our Lord. Uh, Others happily forsake the Lord's Supper or take it with little thought. These individuals in the 16th century and many around this world, they weigh things differently than you and I often do. In fact, sometimes we have lost the ability to, to feel any weight at all when it comes to these issues. And so my goal this morning is to add a little bit of weight to the Lord's Supper. We plan to take that in a little bit. And wait not just in sobriety and seriousness, though that I believe must be present, but wait in joy and and await to our delight as we celebrate and remember what God has done for us as we find great joy in what Christ has accomplished and we remember it. Now I'm referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances. This is typically what how Baptists refer to it or those in the non-denominational movement. It simply means these are things that have been ordained by God to the church. Most Christians will call them sacraments. And it's just we're taking that from the word sacred and, and, and either term probably is, is okay and, and works. Um, we're gonna, we call them uh, ordinances. Like I said, that's just our theological tradition. There are two of them. Baptism, which uh, Pastor Josh taught us last week is largely your initial identification with Christ. It is a declaration to to all who observe it that I belong to Jesus. And then the Lord's Supper, which which is what the Bible calls it. Sometimes we call it communion 
We use that as a traditional term. It's not found in Scripture, but it's a perfectly fine term. But the Lord's Supper is what we see it referred to here in chapter 11, is our continual identification with Christ. So baptism, our initial identification with Christ, and the, the Lord's Supper, our continual identification with Christ. One way to look at these ordinances is to, to picture baptism as the wedding ceremony. That you are publicly uh, professing your love to Jesus. You are declaring to everyone, I'm with Jesus from this day forward. And then the Lord's Supper would be your anniversary celebrations. Right? You remember and celebrate this commitment with, with Christ. You think anniversary celebrations are important? You just ask your wife sitting next to you and she will answer that question for you. And so we, we want to remember and to celebrate. And and with this metaphor, uh, by the way, it it therefore makes no sense to me uh, why one would take the Lord's Supper if they had not been baptized. I know many people do that, um, and I'm certainly not trying to set down any law here, but I would encourage you to think why you'd be willing to take the Lord's Supper and not follow Christ in baptism. If if baptism is the initial identification with Him, the Lord's Supper, the continual identification, I think we, we perhaps would follow that model well and baptism would precede the taking of the Lord's Supper. For instance, my children have never had the Lord's Supper before. Though they're here with us and they sit with us during our worship service and they'll be here while the Lord's Supper is served, they won't partake of the Lord's Supper because so they have not been baptized yet. And so I just encourage you perhaps to think, give some thought to that. Like I said, I'm not trying to make a law. If you lead to different convictions, I trust that you have sought the Lord on that. But I think it'll be interesting for you to explore as to, especially parents, as to how you guide your children in this manner. Of course, today we're not talking about baptism, are we? Which was covered last week. But we're referring to the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is occurred on Passover on the eve of Jesus Christ's crucifixion when he sat down with the apostles. And we see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all kind of explain what took place. I love Luke's uh, account because Luke tells us in Luke 22 and verse 15, I have earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I just love when the Bible not only tells us what Jesus is doing or what Jesus is saying, but I love it when it tells us what Jesus is thinking. And Jesus says, listen, I have longed for this meal. I have longed to sit down with you and, and to share this with you before I suffer. And in my mind's eye, he, he looks in each man in the eye, and full, his heart full of love for them, these men who he desperately loves and he's lived with for now going on three years and says, I, I want to have this special time with you. I want to have this special meal together before I die. And it's just not any meal, as you know, but it is a meal that will go on to explain the significance of his death. And so he'll take the bread and he will say, this is my body, which is for you. And then he will take the cup and he will say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. And then after each element, he will say, do this in remembrance of me. And so he is ordaining a continual practice. You see that? That he, he expects his followers to continue to do this. And yet when they do this, they are to do it in remembrance of him. And, and we see the church immediately doing that. Acts 2, the church is formed after Peter preaches Pentecost. And what do we see them doing? Well, among many things, we see them taking the Lord's Supper after they're baptized. And they're reenacting that last supper. In fact, we see that throughout the New Testament. And one place um, that lays it out rather uh, detailed, uh, with great detail, is, is the church in Corinth. And so what I want to do this morning is we consider the Lord's Supper in this kind of fourth week in this series on the church is to talk to you about 
what God intends us to do. What are we doing when we take this meal? What will we be doing in just a handful of moments as we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And we, we see, first of all, that we are, through the Lord's Supper, to love one another. Through the Lord's Supper, we are to love one another, at least we ought to. The church in Corinth is struggling with this, as you see in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you have come together, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. Now, Paul has planned to this church. He spent 18 months in this church laboring over them, loving them, leading them to Christ. And it's been about a year since he has left. And finally, he sits down and writes them a letter. I trust they'll be pretty excited to receive a letter from their former pastor, their church planner. Paul wrote us a letter. That's fantastic. What does he say? And so Paul says, you're terrible, right? You're, you're causing more harm than good. You're destroying people. I mean, he's very strong here in verse 17. He says, when you come together, it's not for better. It's not for good. But it is for worse. You're, you're destroying one another. And we think, well, what harm are they causing? Well, verse 18 tells us. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You see, what Paul is saying is is the reason why it's harmful is that they're breaking up in factions. They're turning on each other. And I imagine this must be tremendously sad for this man who desperately loves these people, who has given them so much, and now he sees them tearing each other apart and in doing so defaming the gospel. In fact, their factions are clear, especially when they take the Lord's Supper. As we, as we see in verse 20, he, he announces, in fact, the supper they're observing, whatever they call it, is not the Lord's. When you come together, he writes, is it not the Lord's Supper that, it is not, excuse me, the Lord's Supper that you eat? It may look like the Lord's Supper. There may be bread there and there may be wine there. Uh, but the Lord's Supper is not simply what you do with your hands and with your mouth. It's what you do with your heart. And they, they, they are practicing what I think Jesus would probably call the vain traditions of men as they come together and take this meal. And they think it's the Lord's Supper. Paul says it's not. Now, I want you to note, by the way, just a theological footnote, that, that this continual rephrase of coming together. You see that in verse 17? He says, uh, but um, let me find it. It's in there somewhere, isn't it? When, but when you come together, We also see it in verse 18, when you come together. And then again in verse 20, he says, when you come together. He'll repeat this in verse 33, saying, when you come together and eat. In verse 34 even, as he says, so that when you come together. So five times he says, when you gather together and you're doing this. And so understand that the Lord's Supper is something we do when we gather together. So the Karn family doesn't celebrate the Lord's Supper together on Tuesday evenings. We're not the church gathered together. And so when we gather together as a church, it's in those times in which we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Of course, this takes into account when we visit those who are shut in. or those who are hospitalized that we would gather together a small part of the church and take the Lord's Supper to them. But this is clearly what God intended for the church to do when they gather together and they come together. Uh, The reason is because they're coming together around the body and the blood of Jesus. It is a picture of the unity in which Jesus has died to create. He has brought us together as a church. He has not just reconciled us to the Father, but he has reconciled us to one another. And so when we come together, we begin to celebrate what he has done in bringing us together as a people in love and unity. But unfortunately, in Corinth, there's anything but love and unity. In fact, you know, verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now, most likely they are celebrating this meal on the first day of the week, which Christians will later go on and call the Lord's Day. They do this because it's the day of the resurrection. 
And so they're celebrating the first day of the week. The problem with that in Rome and, and uh, Roman provinces, first day of the week's a work day. And so most likely they would not be celebrating in the morning, as we see in the book of Acts. They actually cel- celebrate this time in the evening. And if we're all going to get together in the evening, perhaps, uh, well, what, why don't we have a meal, it seems like. That seems like the, the idea. Let's get together and we'll have, have a meal together and celebrate what God has done for us. And the wealthy individuals who have a great deal of flexibility, well, they can show up whenever they want, can't they? And they can bring their good food and, and their good drink. And they, they come at their leisure, perhaps even coming early. But those kind of working class or those people who are who have jobs. They have to wait till they close up shop and they have to wait till their responsibilities are taken care of. And they bring their perhaps more meager portions with them at this church potluck there in Corinth. Right. And then you know that much of the church at this time was actually made up by slaves. And so the slaves, they have no freedom at all. They could come only when their, their, their owners allow them to often perhaps having to take care of the, the family's meal and clean up after them. And they come much later. Well, when the last ones show up, what do they find? Well, the food's gone. It's already eaten. And even worse, according to verse 21, some are drunk. It's like happy hour at church. Right? I mean, they're getting together and they're getting a little tipsy there um, over the Lord's Supper. It almost seems like a feast in Corinth, doesn't it? It sounds like God's people. I mean, all the same privileges, all the same exclusions. And they reflect the Corinthian society much more than the new society in which God has sent His Son to die in order to create. They're reflecting the world more than what this meal was designed to communicate, which is the unity of the body of Christ. In fact, this is crystal clear back in chapter 10. Just turn there for a moment and note verse 17. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17, he says, because there is one bread, evidently they have one loaf, we who are Many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And so they say we have this one bread which symbolizes that though we are many, we are united together. We are one body together. Christ has died to create that unity. This is what we're to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We're one, though they're not. They're not one at all. And so Paul is beside himself, as you see back in our text in verse 22. What, he says? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You're despising each other. He says, you're humiliating one another. You should have stayed home, he said, rather than come to this church service. At least you should have waited for each other. You know what he says that in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. By the way, that's why in a moment when we have the Lord's Supper, we're going to hold the elements, aren't we? And so you may be in the front of the auditorium, you may get the bread first, but you're going to wait until everyone has received the bread in order that we can gather together and, and eat this meal together as one body in Christ united together in Jesus. This is what the meal is to, to symbolize, that we love each other and we're united together. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here today. And we do hope that you feel welcome here. We, we would like you to know that, that though we often fail in this, we believe Christians are to be people of self-sacrifice and radical love for others. Uh, we, we believe that not in order to earn our way or kind of love our way to God. He's actually loved his way to us in Christ. But because we've received God's love, we believe that you shouldn't have to do anything to receive our love. Rather, what God has done for us should impact us so much that we delight in sharing that love with you. 
This is why I think Paul's so angry. Because they're failing to do this, clearly. For our Christians here, I want you to understand clearly that the Lord's Supper is to reflect Christ's sacrificial love that brings us together. We are to be a united congregation. I would encourage you, therefore, to be aware of selfishness and and personal preferences that you put above other people within the church. Because we want Hamilton Baptist Church not to reflect our culture, but we want it to reflect what God is doing in us, reflect Jesus and what he has done. Some of the children here in the church. I don't know if you ever heard the phrase, joy, Jesus, others, you. You've heard that before? I, I think that's pretty good. Jesus comes first, and then others next, and then you come last. I think, by the way, that's probably good for us adults as well. We're besieged in this world by all these, these repeated messages that you gotta put yourself first, put yourself first. And we see this commercials on TV and we turn on Dr. Phil's and he says, well, you gotta love yourself first. If you're gonna love anybody else, you gotta put yourself first and put yourself first. I don't think that leads to joy. I think putting Christ first leads to joy. And then I think sacrificing for one another, well, uh, perhaps counterintuitively leads to joy. I think this is how God has made us. And therefore, I know we've said this a number of times in this series, but when you think about your participation in this faith community. Do not think, what am I going to get out of it? Do not think, am I preferences being met? But begin to think, what can I contribute? What can I give? How can I bless people? How can I put other people before me? How can I put their preferences before me? How can I use the gifts in which God has given me in order to work in other people's life? We need to pursue that. And we're going to celebrate that unity in a moment that, that at this Lord's table, that he would nourish our unity, that we are all united in Christ. And we love one another because of that. I mean, if we don't love one another, we need to repent of that. Which is the second thing that the Lord's Supper is supposed to do for us, work, help us, as through the Lord's Supper we repent of sin. You look in verse 27. We're going to skip some verses. We'll come back to them. But in verse 27 he says, Who therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And so he says, when you take this Lord's Supper, you need to take it in a manner that is worthy, uh, a worthy manner. Uh, And if you don't, you profane what God has done. In other words, to take the Lord's Supper carelessly, being careless about sin, is in itself an additional sin. And he tells us, he warns us, don't come and take this in an unworthy manner. Now, he is not saying, let's be clear, that you need to be worthy in order to take this meal. right? Because no one is worthy. In fact, the whole point we're taking this meal is because we're not worthy of it and we're not worthy of Christ. All the worthy people don't need Christ's death. It is only the unworthy people who need Jesus to die for them. And so I invite all unworthy people to this table today, which should be all of us. Right? So he's not talking about the individual. He's talking about the, the manner in which one comes to the table. It is to, to come to the table of the Lord and celebrate what Christ has done for us through his death, and at the same time, to harbor sin in our heart, to not turn it over? It's to go against the very reason that Christ has done. So I'm going to hold on to the sin, I'm not going to let it go, and yet I'm going to celebrate your death, that, that, that you died for my sin. That's not, wor- that's not a worthy manner. It's not even understanding what he has done. And we're going to turn this off, and we're going to just go with this mic right here. How's that sound? And so he, he says, don't come in an unworthy manner. He, he warns us of that, doesn't he? Don't profane the body and blood of the Lord. Now, you may think, well, well, you know, it's just an additional sin. What's the big deal? You know, I sin all the time. Pastor, you admit, well, we sin all week long. And so what's just another additional sin if I come and, and take the Lord's Supper here in an unworthy manner? 
Well, let me tell you why it's a big deal. Look in verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's inviting God's discipline on himself, which is described in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. I think this verse is utterly shocking. He says, some of you have become sick and weak because of how you approach this table. Some of you have gone, gained illness because you come to this table in an unworthy manner. Now, we can't reason back from a sickness to some specific sin. And Paul can. He is an apostle. He has unique insight. But we, are, we don't have that insight. So we never want to do that. And we, moreover, we never want to say that all sickness is a result of some specific sin, that there's a connection. In fact, I would suggest that most sickness is not connected to a specific act of sin. Um, but I would not say all sickness. It seems very clear that some are growing sick because of how they approach this meal. Some are growing weak. That is part of God's discipline. And to make things even more stark, he says some have died. Now, your translation may say fallen asleep, which is the literal reading, but that's not a reference to snoozing off in the middle of a sermon. Right? They actually died. Some people have died. Uh, we were t- the staff were talking about this text on Monday, and we were saying, does God still do this? Does God still discipline people through death by an unworthy participation in the Lord's Supper? Um, I don't know, but I don't want to find out. That's not something I want to mess with. I mean, can you imagine? You take the Lord's Supper and the person next to you drinks a little early and then down he goes. Right? You may put the cup back down, right? You may think, I need, I need to pray a little bit more about this. and Maybe I need to make sure I'm coming here without harboring sin in my life. You see, God wants there to be a sobriety to this. This is not to be taken lightly. The unworthy, those who come unworthy may get sick or weak or even die. This is what God is doing. I would once again encourage parents to be very cautious when you give your children the Lord's Supper. Um, and you may think, well, they're not believers, but it was just a cracker and juice for them. It's no big deal. Um, I think they need to understand your seriousness. They need to watch the sobriety in which you take this meal and learn from that. And so I would encourage you to give some thought to that. Now, I understand when we talk about sickness, illness, and death, you think, well, weren't we just talking about love? What, what happened to all the love talk? And we're all, we're all supposed to love each other, and now God's uh, striking people, people with illness. Well, I would suggest to you that, that this is God's love. In fact, verse 32, I think, tells us, but when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, what he's doing is he is disciplining us. He is trying to correct our behavior. There's something worse than death, evidently. He says in verse 32, condemned along with the world. So he sends discipline on us to change our behavior. This is what a good father does for us. He disciplines his children. I don't know if you ever notice well-behaved children like in a restaurant or, or a, a grocery store or a store and, and the well-behaved children kind of draw your attention. You're, you're kind of surprised even. Like these, look at these kids. They're like following their mom and, and not screaming or pulling things down off the shelf. And you're surprised because God doesn't make them that way. Right? You know, instead, he gives them parents. And the parents discipline them in order that the children will become self-disciplined in order that they might eventually become disciples. Well, the Father does the same thing for us. He disciplines us in order that we might self-discipline ourselves in order that we may more faithfully be His disciple. And, and so he comes and he brings his discipline on us because he loves us to help us. Now, so discipline is helpful, but to be perfectly honest, I rather avoid it. 
Right? I'd rather not be disciplined if I can. In fact, he tells us how we can avoid it. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so he says in order to avoid this discipline, you reflect upon yourself prior to taking the meal. He repeats the same idea in verse 31. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So he says, evaluate yourself. Now, I think this is wonderful because the Lord's Supper offers us an opportunity to consider our own life. It offers us an opportunity to consider areas of sin. It provides provides us an opportunity to repent of that sin. Why I think that's wonderful is you and I are much more aware of everyone else's sin. right? We like to spend a lot of attention on other people's sin. But very often, frequently, um, infrequently, do we actually evaluate our own. And so the Lord's Supper gives you this built-in opportunity that you might sit down and think about what's going on in my heart, what, what, what's happening here, that you might call out to God and to, to ask Him for help, that He might come and work in you and reveal sin to you. And we do this not to abstain from the meal, right? And look very carefully in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Right? So you examine yourself not to stop taking. You examine yourself in order to come to the table. And so we can, we can come. We, we don't want it to pass. We want to turn and repent of the sin that the Spirit brings to our mind, knowing that we find mercy in God and that we take this meal gladly as saved sinners. I, I read a story of a Scottish pastor who was giving the Lord's Supper some years ago, and he saw a woman sobbing in his congregation. She, great heaviness in her soul and he knew her situation and what was going on in her life and she felt unworthy and she was just broken over her sin and he walked up to her in the midst of her sorrow over sin and he said take it lassie it's for sinners right so i don't want you to hear even though we come worthy well in a worthy manner it's for sinners sinners come we don't have to be perfect to take the lord's supper we need to turn our sin over to him confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so my question for you is do you examine yourself prior to taking the lord's supper this is why we announce it a week in advance so you can spend some time thinking about yourself do you call it to the holy spirit holy spirit it's your job to convict me of my sin to show me my sin to show me the impure thoughts i had or the unkind words that i have or or the sin that i the action that i taken and then when he does, you realize as you turn that over to the Lord that you are covered. It's covered. That's covered. That's covered. It's all covered by the blood of Christ. This is why this meal is only for Christians. It's only for those who have been covered by Jesus' blood in Christ. This is why we're celebrating his death. If you're not a Christian, you have no reason to celebrate the death of Christ. It hasn't done anything for you. It's, it, we believe the death of Christ has actually covered our sin. And he has washed it away through his death. Well, let me suggest, thirdly, that through the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ's sacrifice. And this is kind of the heart of what we're doing here. We're remembering his sacrifice. Look in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to remember me. And then again in verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so we are going to do this physical action, which is supposed to conjure up a mental action, remembering Jesus. 
The Lord has given us the Lord's Supper to help us to remember Him. He's saying, let this bread, when it's in your hand, remind me, remind you of my body, and this cup remind you of my blood. We're to focus our mind upon Christ. And so this is not some mystical ritual which we take. We're not getting in touch with our inner being or we're not emptying our mind in any way. We're fixing our mind actually on a real point in history when a real body was beaten and scourged and spat upon and nailed to a cross. And we are focusing our mind upon an actual point in history when a real man had nails pinned to his hands and feet and he shed his blood for us. We fix our mind upon that, that Christ has broken His body and His blood has been shed to take away the wrath of God. We think about the heartless taunting and the macabre parade and the cruel mocking from the cross and the terrible darkness and the unimaginable agony. We think about the words that He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. My God, my God, why have Thou forsaken me? It is finished. Into Your hands I commit my spirit. These are the things that we remember, that we recall. This is what you do when you're holding the bread, waiting for everyone else to receive it. You think, what am I supposed to do? Well, you remember. Think about your Lord. Consider what He has done, namely His death for you. You think, well, why do I need to be reminded? I mean, I haven't forgotten. Right? Oh, yeah, Jesus died. I forgot about that. None of us are in that place. We haven't forgotten. So why why do we need to be reminded? I wonder, do do you have... Do you have any pictures of your family in your office? Maybe on the walls in your home or a picture of your sweetheart in your wallet. Well, have you forgotten what they look like? No, of course not. You, you know exactly what they look like. You haven't forgotten. Those pictures aren't there to inform your intellect. They're there to touch your heart, right? And as you're temporarily separated from them, you look at them and your heart begins to stir and you look forward to when you get to wrestle with them and have hugs and kisses or when you get to home, go home and embrace your wife and and you think about them and maybe you pray for them and you thank God for them and you long to be with them. See, there's great value in pictures. Well, the Lord suffers our pictures. It's a time for us to pause and to look, not to inform our minds, but to stir our hearts to remind us of the love that has been shown for us and create a longing to to see Him. We need to ask, am I ready for Him to come? And as I mentioned specifically, we're focusing in on His death. And so this meal is not to remind us of the virgin birth. He gave us no ordinance to remind us of that event. It's not to remind us of His sinless life or His powerful compassion or His mighty works or His amazing teaching. The Lord's Supper is to remind us of the cross. That is at the center of who we are. That's, that's central and will remain central. May the cross never be assumed in Hamilton Baptist Church. Oh yeah, the cross. Yeah, but we've kind of moved on. We're into ethics or philosophy or social justice. And we, the cross was good when we came in, but now we have advanced beyond that. No, may it always be before us. This is what he's doing. He wants to keep it in front of us. Years ago when I was pastoring down south, I invited a single dad and his daughter to come to church, um, and to worship with us. And his daughter said, I don't want to go to your church. I said, well, why, why don't you want to come to our church? He says, all you people talk about is blood. And you sing about blood, and you preach about blood. I've heard you, and it's all about blood and blood and blood. And I say, may it ever be so. Right? May we never get beyond that. We may never like advance. Oh, we're at uh, more advanced Christianity. We don't need to focus in on the cross. He wants us to be reminded of what He has done. Unfortunately, it seems that the meal has 
has moved from that, and we have this now raging debate as not to what he's done, but what these elements are. Like, what is this cup, and what is this bread? Does it actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus, as some teach? And I would like to suggest to you, we don't have time. I intended to talk to you more at length than this, but our time is running short. But I'd like to suggest to you that simply Jesus is speaking metaphorically when he says, this is my body. After all, it's his body that's holding the bread when he says that, right? And he's about to eat it, which is even more weird. Right? He says, this, this cup is my blood. Well, his blood is in his veins while he's saying that. And I think Jesus is just using a metaphor, right? We, we speak metaphorically. We say, I'm so hungry, I, I could eat a horse, right? So if I brought you a horse, I say, here you go, dig in, right? You say, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to eat the horse. I just want a pizza, right? I, it's a, right? It's a metaphor. I'm just hungry. Jesus uses metaphors too. I am the vine, right? And we don't look for leaves on Jesus, right? I am the door. It's like, well, where are your hinges? No, Jesus doesn't have hinges. It's a metaphor. And so I simply think what he is saying here is metaphorically, that this should remind you of my body. And so when we hold this bread, in a moment we're going to lift it up and we're going to say to one another as a united church, the body of Christ is broken for you. But we don't mean it literally. It's not literally his body. It is metaphorically his body. It is to remind us of his body. In fact, he tells us about his body there in verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. I love that little phrase, for you. He says, I'm, I'm giving myself for you. I'm dying in your place. I'm taking the death that you deserve, and I'm taking it upon myself. In preparing for this message, I, I came across a story at the end of a civil, the Civil War, uh, a man was seen kneeling near a soldier's grave in Nashville, a farmer. A bystander came up to him and he said, is that the grave of your son? And the man said, no, I have seven children, all young and a wife and a poor farm in Illinois. I was drafted into the Union Army. Despite the great hardship, it would be upon my family. But the morning I was to depart, the man who now lies in this grave, my neighbor's oldest son, offered to take my place in the war. When the farmer eventually walked away, the bystander could read the words he had written on the gravestone. Simply read, he died for me. That's what Christ has done. He has died for us. He has given himself in our place. We remember that in the Lord's Supper. This is my body, which is for you. In fact, I love that Paul includes this little phrase there in verse 24. In fact, so do the Gospels. He says he broke it. He wants us to know that it's him who willingly gave it, right? No one took it from him. It's Jesus who broke it. Judas didn't break his body. Pilate didn't break his body. Caiaphas or Annas didn't break his body. The soldiers didn't break his body. Jesus gave himself willingly for us, as the Bible tells us in John chapter 10. For this reason, my father loves me, because I lay down my life, and that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I tell you, the cross was no accident. Evil men didn't get the upper hand on Jesus. It was the sovereign plan from the foundation of the world. It was a demonstration of the shepherd's love for his sheep. He gave us his body freely and willingly and lovingly, and not just his body, but his blood. As we see in verse 25, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, all covenants were ratified by blood. And so his blood will be shed to ratify a new covenant, not just any new covenant, but the new covenant. Can you imagine what that would be like then that night when you gather around the table and Jesus raises the cup at Passover and he says, I want you to understand that, that that new covenant 
that you've heard about for centuries, that the prophets have told you about, that one day God's going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And he's going to take his law and he's going to write it on your heart. And no longer will it be tablets standing outside us to condemn us, but it's going to be in us that we can freely and joyfully obey him. And he's going to pass over his wrath and he's going to forgive all your sins forevermore. You remember that? Remember when the prophets told you that? Today I tell you I have brought that covenant and my blood will be shed to ratify it. I'm here to bring it to you. This is what he has given us. If you're here as a non, not a Christian, I want you to understand that, that we are Christians because we believe we need a savior. We, we fundamentally believe that we need salvation. We don't need rules or ethics or, or, or anything like that. Some system, some religious acts to do. Though we have all that and we appreciate those, but what we need is someone to save us. We find that savior in one who obeyed in our place and died in our place, namely Jesus. And we want to remember him. We think that's important. Is it important to remember this church? We want to honor him through this meal. It's worth doing. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we, we think about how good he has been to save you and that his death has secured it. For time's sake, we're going to skip the next point. I just want to move now to the, the fifth point. is that through the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Christ's death. We see this in verse 26. He says, For as, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we're not simply remembering it. We are announcing it. We are proclaiming it. It is so valuable that it's, it needs to be more than remembered. It needs to be proclaimed. And so we remember it in our minds and we announce it to other people's minds. And we're and about to proclaim it in a moment. In fact, look around. So let's go ahead and take a moment. Look, look around. Right? You're not alone. You're not alone here. You are not saved to be a Christ follower by yourself. You are saved into a people. And this people is going to proclaim to you the gospel in a moment in order that, that Christians may have our faith sustained. I'm not alone in this. There are others who believe this. Others who love this God. We're in this together. We need that even more, the Bible says, as the day draws near. And you are to proclaim it to unbelievers. That you might awaken faith in them. You might conjure it up in them. In fact, there was a great man who came to Christ through the Lord's Supper. His name was Charles Simeon. And in 1779, Charles Simeon entered Cambridge University with a brilliant mind and as an eager student, but no love for God at all. He soon found out that he would have to take the Lord's Supper on Easter Sunday, which terrified him. He said, the devil's more prepared to take the Lord's Supper than I. He had three weeks to get himself ready, and so he began to read the Bible and just poured over the Bible. And he started in the beginning, he just started working his way through. And he saw these sacrifices in, these, in the Old Testament, and he saw these people transferring sin upon, upon these sacrifices. And he began to wonder, has he given me something that I could put my sin on? Is there someone that would take my place? And he got to the New Testament and began to see who Christ is and what Christ has done. He said on the Wednesday before Easter, he began to hope that he might be able to find mercy. On Thursday through Saturday, the hope increased. On Easter Sunday, he awoke with these words on his lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
he came to bow his knee to Jesus. In fact, he took that Lord's Supper, and when he ate the bread and drank the wine, he said, I felt the load being taken off my soul, and peace rushed into my heart like I had never experienced before. His faith was awakened. By the way, Simeon would have a career change. He would go on to be the, the vicar of the Holy Trinity Church at Cambridge, Cambridge University for 54 years and become one of England's, England's greatest preachers. You're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Therefore, I would invite you not to take of this meal, but to watch others take it. To look and see what these people believe around you. Why are they doing this? What are they teaching? What are they proclaiming? In fact, I, I praise the Lord that there are churches throughout this world where the pulpit has gone silent when it comes to the death of Jesus. And they talk about everything but the death of Jesus. And yet the Lord's table continues to preach. And they continue to celebrate this table, which celebrates his death, just as God had proclaimed it. In fact, the Lord's Supper not simply proclaims what Jesus did, but it also proclaims what he will do. Let's lastly consider that through the Lord's Supper, we anticipate Christ's return. Look in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So how long are we going to do this for? Well, well, until he comes. Right? We're not going to do this forever, evidently. So he's coming. You are aware of that. He is returning. And the Lord's Supper proclaims that we believe that Jesus Christ will come back to this earth, as he promised, with the armies of heaven with him, as the King of kings and the undisputable Lord of lords, and recreate this world, right every wrongs, and usher us into an eternity of perfection. We believe that's coming and we're going to take these really homely elements, right? It's just a little cracker and, I don't know, a quarter ounce of juice, right? As a foretaste of the great banquet at the table of our king. It's like hors d'oeuvres this, this morning, right? This is appetizer. This is to whet your appetite, to prepare you for the feast. For Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's coming to celebrate with us, and we will not be having crackers and grape juice on that feast. In fact, Isaiah 25 says, The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. I mean, there's going to be a big bloody slab of meat there. Uh, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so when we take this meal, we anticipate a greater meal, do we not? We cry out in our hearts, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And so please understand though, we're celebrating his death. This is not a funeral meal. Though this is sober, this is weighty, but we're not at a funeral. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. He's risen. He's returning for us. So I invite you to take this cup. And take this, it's like a dress rehearsal, right? We're just getting ready for the marriage feast of the Lamb, for the Bible tells us that I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. One day, Christian, you will be at that table. Let's anticipate it and rejoice in it through this meal. So you want to rehearse? Does that sound okay? You want to love each other? Would you like to repent of your sin and turn it over to Him? Would you like to remember His sacrifice and proclaim the gospel and celebrate His return? 
Well, he's given us a meal to do it. In fact, let's prepare our hearts even now, can we? Let's come to him and say, God, if there's sin in here, I just want to turn it over. I know you died for sin, but I want to give it to you. I want to confess it to you and lay it at your feet. Why don't you pray silently to him now? Our Father, we rejoice that all our sin is covered. All of us who have bowed our knee to Jesus have been washed clean. And we have been cleaned because your Son has died in our place. Three days later, rose from the dead. We come to celebrate that work, to remember it and to anticipate his return. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.